none like you, O Lord, in all the earth. As we come together this morning to speak about the word of the cross and that the word of the cross itself is the gospel, we ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, God is great and greatly to be praised. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. And the word of God says this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. So the question becomes this morning, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now you think this would be a question that would be completely unnecessary when you ask it among a group of Christians. It would be like asking a convention of carpenters what a hammer is. After all, the gospel of Jesus Christ stands at the very center of Christianity and we Christians claim to be about the gospel above all else. The gospel is what we say we live our lives for. The gospel is what we claim our churches are built upon. The gospel is what we call and proclaim to an unbelieving word daily. And the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. But what does it mean to have a firm grasp on the content of the gospel? How can we teach what we do not know, and how can we lead where we have never gone before? 
How, we, how can we proclaim that our lives are about the gospel above all else if we don't know what the gospel is? Now, a scrawny gospel, a skinny gospel, a starved gospel leads to scrawny worship and skinny worship and starved worship of a great and holy God. It will lower our eyes from a great God and give us a worship that is gaunt and graceless, a worship that is filled with self-centeredness, and it will cheapen what we believe God to be and what he has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. The true biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel in the furnace of our worship. The more you understand about it, the more you believe it, the more you rely upon it, the more you will come to adore God for both who he is and what he's already done through Christ Jesus. Romans 11.33 says it this way, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable is his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a blunt and a bold message. It is a simple and a severe message. It is a sturdy and substantial message. It's a message that's going to intrude into the world's petty thinking. It's a message that will intrude into this world's priorities. It is a message that will intrude into this world's principles. So, Pastor, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ and where can we go to find it? Well, I think one of the best places to go is to go to the Word of God. And I think Paul's letter to the Romans more clearly depicts the gospel than any other book in the Bible. I think that it contains a deliberate step-by-step expression of the gospel and what Paul understood as the good news. In Romans 1, Paul introduces the message and himself through a systematic step-by-step way that seals the very gospel in our spirit. He begins with Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now from this verse, he launches our understanding of the gospel, and then he takes us through the first four chapters of Romans, and he explains the good news. Now, he does this by painting a picture of the gospel on the canvas of four principles. Four principles I want you to repeat with me. First, say God. God. Then say man. Man. Then say Christ. Christ. Then say response. So it's God, man, Christ, response. First, he tells us, he tells us about God. He tells us about God because God is who we are accountable for. He starts off in his first uh, seven introductory remarks, and he tells us when he gets down to 17 and 18, really in 18, he says, for the wrath of 
of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what does this mean, Pastor? He's saying that the one who created us the one who owns us, the one that we owe everything to is angry with us. Well, why, Pastor? Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all lied. We all cheated. We've all stole. We've all dishonored him. We've all denied him and we've gone our own way. All of humanity has become autonomous. So, Pastor, what is autonomy? Break it down. Auto, self-driven, nomos, law. So autonomy is you want to be a law unto yourself. But we can't do that because we're not self-accountable. We are not self-reliant, but we are accountable to a holy God. He created us, and he has a right to demand worship from us. Romans 1.21, for, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul tells us that we all sin by not honoring God, by not being thankful to God, by not acknowledging God, his authority over us. And then secondly, he speaks to man or mankind. And he tells us that all of mankind has rebelled against God. We have not honored God. We have not given thanks to him. Instead, we have given thanks to other objects. Look at Romans 1, 22 through 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. Just think about that for a moment. What a revolting charge made against us that human beings that are made in the image of God have decided to negate the one that they should give worship to and we honor wooden and metal images instead of a holy God. We have made these idols more valuable in our lives than the one who created us. Then he presses through for the next three chapters, pressing this point, Romans 2 and 1, he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because the judge practices the very same things. So Paul is saying, he's calling Jews out of here, saying, hey, Jews, you're no different than Gentiles. You've broken God's law and you're under his judgment. He takes it further in Romans 3, 9 through 12. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless and no one does good. No, not even one. 
Now, you know, the first two points of the good news are really, in fact, pretty bad news. I mean, God is angry with us, and we deserve that anger because we rebelled against him. But you know something? The good news doesn't hold the punch and the promise until you know what kind of situation you're in. Thirdly, Christ speaks to us, or rather, Paul speaks to us about Christ. He tells us that God has prepared a solution for our sin problem. And it is the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Having laid out the bad news of our predicament as, that we face as sinners, now he tells us that there's a righteous God and he starts to give us the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, now there's a way for us to be counted righteous before God instead of unrighteous. There's a way for us to be declared innocent instead of guilty. There's a way for us to be justified instead of condemned. So how does this happen, Pastor? Look at Romans 3, 24 through 26. And you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be a propitiation means that Jesus stands before God on our behalf and satisfies his wrath. This, is, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So despite our rebellion, despite our hopeless situation, because of Jesus Christ, we can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that comes only through Christ Jesus. It is through Christ Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. It is because of Christ Jesus' blood that sinners like you and I may be saved from the condemnation of our sin. But pastor, how does all this good news affect me and how do I make sure I'm included in this salvation? Well, finally, Paul tells us that it's about our response. He tells us in Romans 3.22 again, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. By responding through faith and believing in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him and no other to save us, by understanding that Christ's work on the cross has done all the work that was needed. Romans 5, or rather Romans 4 and 5 says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We can obtain forgiveness and salvation and eternal life by calling 
on the name of Jesus. Romans 10, 13 says, for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what do we do? Is God, is mankind, is Christ, is response. And if we're not willing to share that with people that we said that we love, we are basically telling them that as far as I am concerned, you can go to hell. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you and we just ask you to convict our hearts today and to press these words upon us in a way like never before. Lord, place in us a, an urgency. Let us set forth this truth. Let us set forth a reason for the hope that we have to everyone that we know. Whether they want to hear it or not, we know it's to their benefit. Let us present the benefits and the great blessings that come with believing in your son, Jesus Christ, and accepting him as Lord. It is in the precious name of your son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said amen. You know, this word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Verse 18 tells us, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul uses this phrase, the word of the cross, to represent a clear and a convincing reality in the life of the Christian believer and for the unbeliever, the word here, logos, the word we see in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word of the cross is the very message of the cross. You, you have to understand here, the cross during this time represented a scandalous killing of a person. It represented the scandalous killing of an enemy of the state, right? Because only the Romans could do this. Uh, the scandalous killing of an individual which was shown no mercy, no charity was extended, and no grace was applied. The cross was all about judgment. That is why when people see the cross now, they see it, some of them who are unbelievers, as a scandal when you present the cross as the good news or the symbol of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see here that when Paul says a word of the cross, he uses this to really help define clearly these two different groups that are being addressed here. One group is defined as what? Foolish. And it points to the fact that they are perishing. At the same time, this word of the cross is clearly being communicated to another group, but to this group, they see the word of the cross as what? Hope, relief, and salvation. You see, to those who are being saved, the word of the cross clearly describes the power of God. But to those who are perishing, it is clearly foolishness. So, pastor, how can this be? 
Well, let's examine the terms quickly. This word folly, moria, where we get the word moron. It means foolishness. You know, back in, I guess, the 1910, the American Association, I love this name, the American Association for the Study of the Feeble-Minded came up with this term, moron. And this, this is the technical definition that they use. An adult with a mental age between 8 and 12, an adult with mental development that was arrested at an early age and never further developed. So Paul is saying here, he's trying to make sure we recognize that anyone who sees the word of the cross as foolishness are people who have had their true mental capacity arrested by Satan and they have been blind to the truth of Jesus Christ because they lack God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Whenever Paul uses the term the natural person, he's talking about an unsaved person, a person in their very soulless state. And then there's another term here that you really need to get to understand. It's the word perishing. Now, this is deceiving because in English, perishing means uh, cold, inclement, dying. But in Greek, it has a distinct and more detrimental understanding. The word is apollumen, and it means to ruin, to perish, to be destroyed, to cause utter destruction and whenever it's used as a metaphor in scripture then it means to be someone who is destined for hell so let's just walk this back for the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing so the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are destined to hell that's what he's saying and if you need further evidence because you're looking at me like you don't believe that, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So wait a minute. They're not only just perishing, they're blind. They've been blinded by the God of this world blinded by their own unbelief. They can't see the light of the glory of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 through 11. But I will remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Look how Paul keeps going back to his proof text or his proof source, which is the word of God, right? That he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he's speaking about himself, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The gospel is concerned about God's original purpose, his plan, his design in sending Christ into a world to down the cross. So the question becomes this. Did the Father God intend to send his son to down the cross to make salvation possible for everyone, but his death effectual for no one? That is that God simply sent Christ to the cross to make salvation possible Or did God from all eternity have a plan of salvation according to his riches and grace and his eternal election that he designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of his people? You know, I prefer to use not the term limited atonement, but definite atonement or definite redemption. I think it communicates that God the Father designed the work of redemption specifically and perfectly in view to provide salvation to all that he's called and that Christ died for his sheep and he laid down his life and not one of them will ever reject him. You know, there are objections to this reading of scripture and usually People will go to 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, and it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with God one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to some as they account slowness, but he's patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. If you look here, the immediate antecedent of the word any in this passage is the word us. And it is perfectly clear that he is talking about he, will, he wishes that none of us and that all of us will come to salvation. And all you got to do, when you address a letter to someone, how do I know who you're speaking to? I go back to the salutation of the letter. Go back to the salutation of 2 Peter 3.1. And what does it say? Simon Peter, a servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's not, this is not a universal letter here. He's speaking to a specific audience. It does not mean that there's a limit placed on the value or the merit of God's atonement. It's available to all, but it's only effective to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now we see here that we're dealing in this scripture with an active tension between two groups because the word of the cross is also the wisdom of God. Look at verses 19 through 21 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased, underline that, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This opening salvo here is taken out of Isaiah 29, 14. Therefore, behold, I will do again, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning man shall be hidden. God made a promise here. He says that those who in this world have great wisdom are not as wise as they think they are, that God will destroy it. He will make their wisdom to no effect at all, their discernment to no effect at all. He will frustrate it. He will defeat it. He will place a roadblock in front of it. You see here, the words wisdom and discernment are used in an ironic and a negative sense because they speak of our human intelligence being used without God's help. God is going to prevent plans made by mankind in this sense. So the question becomes, Lord, why are you doing all this? Well, look at Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by man. You see, Outward worship offends God if we use outward worship as a way of evading true relationship with God. What we express outwardly, he wants to make sure is verified by what we know in our hearts inwardly toward him. Because God can't be set aside and God is not mocked. He promises to do wonderful things for those who love him. Human cleverness places itself before God, really disregards God. 
God will use his overruling power to accomplish his own purposes. He will overrule those who promote a godless beginning, evolution. Overrules those who will try to pit science against omniscience. How do you pit science against omniscience? What's the definition of omniscience? All signs, right? How do you how do you use your strength against omni uh, om, uh, omnipotence? What is that? All power. You can't overrule God. First Colossians, or as you were, Colossians one fifteen through twenty. He is the image of the invisible God. He personal pronoun refers to Jesus. Okay. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul follows all of this up in our passage by giving us these three rhetorical questions. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? We recognize that those Greek philosophers in Paul's day thought they were incredibly wise and they were respected for their knowledge. And then he says, where is the scribes referring to the Jewish teachers of the law? But yet, as much of the law that they understood, they misunderstood much of the law. Look at John 5, 39. This is Jesus speaking. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying you don't know what you think you know. Then he goes on and says, we're the debater of this age. You know, we go downtown Indianapolis and we see people, you know, playing instruments on the corner and you throw two or three dollars in their uh, little basket. Well, back in this time, they had debaters that will go through these great rhetorical speeches and you would listen to them. And if you felt they made their point, you would give them money. He says, where's the debater of this age? Don't they, under, they cannot understand anything because at best they only have the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 
For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now, the question becomes to me whether this is intentional or accidental. I think it's intentional, and I think this proves it. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God has decided who is going to come to him, and it's not going to be on their own intellect, but through his initiative. John 15, 16 through 17, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. These things I commanded you so that you will love one another. This word here when he says, it pleased God, eudokeo means to determine that God was resolved, he was well pleased, and he delighted in this. This was his chosen method. First Corinthians 1, 27-31, but God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God's righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And do you want to know what Jesus had to say about this? Jesus speaks directly to us in Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. Listen to the words. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, he's not talking about physical rest. He's talking about the very rest of your soul, the assurance that you know him for yourself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is no doubt that the folly of preaching is intentional on God's part, that no one comes by their own intellect. Jesus says, In John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Titus 3, 3 through 7, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word of the cross is wiser and stronger than the wisdom of man. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Jews demand signs. They constantly wanted to see another sign, another great event. Even though if the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were great students of the Old Testament, if they took a moment to really reflect on the life of Jesus, this person that has fulfilled over 400 prophecies that came out of the Old Testament, how could they not see that sign? But yet they were looking for more and more because of their unbelieving hearts. And then Paul tells us Greeks, they were the intellectual class. They thought everybody else they, they, they were nothing if you didn't speak Greek, if you weren't trained as they were. They sought wisdom. So if it didn't make intellectual sense to them that God will come down in a body because they stained the flesh, God would never take on a fleshly body. There's nothing good in our flesh. But Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews. Now, the word there is Scandalone. And scandalone was a stick that you would put in the path of an animal that when the animal ran through this path, it would knock over something to trap him. So he's saying that for Jews, they were trapped by their own unbelief. That's why it became a stumbling block for them. And then for Gentiles, it was Folly, just foolishness. But look how he does this. Out of both of those groups, he says, but both Jews and Greeks, so he, now he's gone from two groups to a third group, right? Both Jews and Greeks who are being called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That his message is able to 
penetrate to those that he has called from amongst those who are unbelievers. And then Paul closes out here with a little hyperbole. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. We know that God can't be foolish. This is how he says, even if God could be foolish, his foolishness would be wiser than any man. And even if God could be weak, his strength would be stronger than any man. So he's emphasizing that, that we serve an unbelievable, righteous God that can be trusted. Lastly, Matthew 12, 39 through 40. Jesus speaking, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the only sign he gave them was early one Sunday morning when he left the tomb empty. And as they were all in disbelief, that he had did exactly what he said he would do. Can you imagine that visitation when he gets to the beach with his disciples and they're fishing and they've been out all night. These are professional fishers, fishermen, and they've gone, you know, they, they, you can tell they've given up because they've gone back to their previous occupation. And they've been out there all night and this stranger that they can't, really distinguished says to them hey throw your net on the other side of the boat and they go like man we've been all night who is this but they're polite guys and they throw it on the other side of the boat and then he catches so many fish the boat almost sinks and then it hits them this must be Jesus and then Peter jumps into the water. Now remember, it starts off, Jesus asked them, do you have any fish? By the time they get to the beach, what is Jesus doing? Having a fish fry. <laughs> and he sits down and he allows them to see him eat so they don't think he's a ghost or a spirit because he's consuming food. That same Jesus has the same power now that he did then. That same Jesus is worthy of our worship. And most importantly, he's worthy of us sharing with those who are the closest to us. So that we don't want to see them eternally apart from the only way out of their predicament. God's wrath will never be satisfied unless it's appeased by our faith in his son, Christ Jesus.
We must take this seriously. This is our purpose. This is our call that we are to be the hands and feet of Christ Jesus. We are to be ambassadors of Christ, giving out his message as if it was coming directly from him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you and we thank you for the honor of being your laborers in this great harvest. You tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord, we ask you to sign us up, train us and build us up in every way. Speak to our heart, encourage us, and Lord, let us clearly recognize how we can share daily with everyone we meet the fact that God holds us accountable and that he's angry with us. The fact that humanity has walked away from us all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that Christ Jesus is a sacrificial lamb that came to take away the sins of this world. The fact that we must respond by trusting in his son. And Lord, let us build up a new army to live with you eternally and to serve with you directly here on earth until that day comes. It's in the precious name of your son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.